Welcome to Horty Springer Health Law Expressions Podcast on a segment we like to call the Kickback Chronicles. I'm Henry Cassell. And I'm Hala Mazoffer. We invite you to kick back and relax as we dive into this week's case. The title of today's podcast is But for the Grace of Fraud, Go I. Now, today's story is a little different than the others that we've previously discussed on the Kickback Chronicles. Thus far, when we've chosen a case to discuss on this podcast, the person involved has pled guilty or a trial has occurred and the defendant or defendants have been found guilty. They have either been sentenced or ordered to pay money or, like the person in our last episode, are on parole awaiting sentencing and decide to commit fraud one more time. As a side note, if you haven't heard that episode yet, we strongly suggest that you check that one out. I agree with Hala, especially on the last podcast. It's pretty good. But unlike the, those previous episodes of this podcast, this case is not finished, but there's still a lot to learn from it. Hala, why don't you give us the facts of what happened here? All right, Henry. The story behind this case involves Dr. Sanjay Fawn, a Missouri physician, and his fiancée, Deborah Seeger. Now, this story starts some time ago, roughly 14 years, actually. So in 2008, Dr. Fawn got engaged to Miss Seeger. And according to a 2018 press release, she was still his fiancée, so this is a long-term engagement. Maybe (laughs) long-suffering. And in November of that same year, 2008, Ms. Seeger opened and started a spinal implant distributorship business called DS Medical. Now, spinal implants include devices like those used to treat deformities, stabilize, and strengthen the spine, and facilitate fusion. This is an especially lucrative business to be in because the commission for selling these types of spinal products is significant. Now, Dr. Fawn was a neurosurgeon, and from 2009 to 2012, as part of his practice, Dr. Fawn performed spinal surgeries to treat degenerative disc disease and other spinal disorders. And his treatment plans for these conditions required spinal implants. Now, several brands of implants from various vendors were available. And if you've already connected the dots, yes, this is going exactly where you think it is. Did Dr. Fawn select a brand sold by a complete stranger with whom he had no personal and professional connection? Or did he buy them from the love of his life? If you really need some more time to guess, please feel free to pause the podcast. But for the rest of you, Dr. Fawn did in fact use his fiancé's company, DS Medical, as his spinal implant distributor for most of the spinal implants he chose to use during his surgeries from 2009 to 2012. Now, Ms. Seeger typically received 50% commissions on these implants Dr. Fawn used during his surgeries. This meant that Dr. Fawn's treatment choices directly impacted his fiancée's distributorship income. In fact, in one year, she made $1.3 million in commission from just one implant manufacturer. And it should come as no surprise that she made more money if he used multiple or more expensive implants. Now, some people at the hospital got very suspicious of this cozy financial relationship between Dr. Fawn and Ms. Seeger. And I'm sure this long-term engagement didn't help their cause at all. And it was so suspicious, in fact, that they filed a key TAM lawsuit alleging a violation of the False Claims Act. And after reviewing the case while it was under seal, the government decided to intervene. So the DOJ took the place of these suspicious key TAM relators. And as a result, this case was prosecuted by the Department of Justice. Now, the basis of this key TAM claim was this 2010 amendment to the anti-kickback statute that states, in addition to the penalties provided for in this section... A claim that includes items or services resulting from a violation of the section constitutes a false or fraudulent claim 
for purposes of the False Claim Act. Now, that's a lot of words, but so this amendment essentially said that if you violated the anti-kickback statute, you also violated the False Claims Act. And the case eventually went to a jury, and a trial evidence established that Ms. Seeger received her commissions through DS Medical, but then she spent some of that income to benefit Dr. Fawn through home improvements, a sea lion yacht, and a number of other extravagant purchases. Based on the evidence presented at trial and relying on the jury instructions that were provided, the jury found that the claims resulted from a violation of the anti-kickback statute and were thus a violation of the False Claims Act. The jury found both Dr. Fawn and Ms. Seeger guilty on two of three claims of False Claim Act violations for submitting these false or fraudulent claims resulting from their violating the anti-kickback statute. Now, the False Claims Act permits the amount of false claims to be tripled and a per-claim penalty assessed. So after all was said and done, the trial court awarded the government $5,495,931.22 in damages. Dr. Fawn and Ms. Singer appealed this judgment, and that brings us where we are today. Henry, can you explain for us what happened and why is this case not finished? I certainly will, but first, I want to discuss what this case is not about. Typically, when we discuss a case that involves the False Claims Act, the defendant is alleged to have performed medically unnecessary services, billed a health care program for services that were not provided, upcoded by billing the government more than they should have, or performed the service so badly that the government has claimed that the services were worthless and a claim should not have been submitted, thus making a federal case out of essentially what should be a malpractice claim. But none of that is present here. And yet a jury awarded the government, and I should say the Ketam relators who get a portion of that recovery, in excess of $5 million based on the False Claims Act. How is that possible? Well, next we should look at traditional Medicare reimbursement. The Medicare program reimburses a hospital under Medicare Part A for hospital technical items and services provided to a beneficiary, and Medicare Part B reimburses a physician for his or her professional services. Here, the spinal implants that were sold by Ms. Seeger's company were sold to the hospital and paid for by the hospital from the hospital's technical Part A reimbursement. Dr. Fon then would submit a claim under Medicare Part B for his professional services provided during the neurosurgical surgery. The Medicare program paid the hospital the same amount under the prospective payment system regardless of the spinal implant ordered. So while the hospital may not have been happy about paying more for a spinal implant that was sold by Ms. Seeger's company instead of a less expensive alternative, the hospital, not the government, was harmed by this arrangement. By the way, this is why hospitals have been searching for ways to provide a physician with a financial incentive to choose the most cost-effective implants, such as cost-sharing arrangements, arrangements that have been made easier due to the January 19, 2021 amendments to the Stark Rules and to the Anti-Kickback Safe Harbor Regulations. But how does this arrangement involve the False Claims Act? That's because a violation of the Anti-Kickback Statute is not dependent on the government showing that the kickback arrangement caused the government to lose any money. In an anti-kickback case involving a physician, 
the government is required to show that remuneration was knowingly and willfully paid to a physician, directly or indirectly, in cash or in kind, and that remuneration induced the physician to refer an item or service that is paid for in whole or in part by a federal health care program, such as Medicare or Medicaid. Once this is proven beyond a reasonable doubt, the government is not required to show that a federal health care program lost any money due to the kickback arrangement. And there have actually been cases where physicians have been sent to jail for violating the anti-kickback statute, even though the kickback arrangement did not cost the government a cent. Now, for many years, both the Department of Justice and the Office of Inspector General have taken the position that if a violation of the anti-kickback statute can be shown, then any claims that were submitted while that unlawful arrangement was in effect were tainted, and if you can see me, I'm using air quotes over the word tainted, by the violation of the anti-kickback statute, and each such claim constituted a separate violation of the False Claims Act. In 2010, Congress amended the anti-kickback statute in an attempt to codify this position by adding the amendment that Hala described. However, Congress did not carefully choose its words. Rather than using words in the amendment that clearly reflected the historical approach that the OIG and DOJ used when discussing how claims arising from a violation of the anti-kickback statute constituted false claims, Congress amended the anti-kickback statute to state that claims resulting from a violation of the anti-kickback statute are false claims under the False Claims Act. Remember those words, resulting from, because they play an important role in this case. Previous to this case, most people in the field understood what Congress meant by this amendment, and no one gave much thought to the actual wording used. In fact, in, this, in Dr. Fromm's appeal, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals cited a 2018 case decided by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which includes our home state of Pennsylvania, as well as New Jersey, Delaware, and the Virgin Islands, that essentially said that, and, and the Eighth Circuit essentially said that the Third Circuit was wrong because it relied on congressional intent and the traditional OIG, DOJ, tainted claims theory of liability to find liability under the False Claims Act for claims submitted in violation of the anti-kickback statute. The Eighth Circuit believed that rather than this uh, using the intent, the Third Circuit should have focused on the exact words used in the 2010 amendment. In Dr. Fawn's appeal, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, which includes Arkansas, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, North and South Dakota, took a very different approach. Here, the Eighth Circuit examined the exact words that were used in the 2010 Amendment to the Anti-Kickback Statute when determining what the government was required to show in order to prove that Dr. Fawn and Ms. Seeger violated the Anti-Kickback Statute and that the violation of the False Claims Act, quote, resulted from, end of quote, that violation of the Anti-Kickback Statute. Now, in this appeal, Dr. Fawn and Ms. Seeger made two basic arguments. The first argument that was addressed by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals is one that I am ashamed to say I found to be fascinating, and that was whether the trial court used the correct burden of proof in this case. 
Uh, for those of you that don't know, burdens of proof is probably one of the more boring areas of the law, so it's possible Henry may be one of the few people that actually found that as fascinating. That's very true, Pahela, but I found it fascinating nonetheless, because here's the issue. The operative statute that everyone was looking at was the anti-kickback statute. The anti-kickback statute is a criminal statute, but this case involved a civil claim brought under the False Claims Act. So the first question the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals had to address was whether the government was required to show that the anti-kickback statute was violated beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the criminal burden of proof, or was the government only required to show that the anti-kickback statute was violated by a preponderance of the evidence, which is the burden of proof in a civil case. So what's the difference between the two of those? Well, it's a lot if you were the one on trial. The beyond reasonable doubt standard means that the government must show that there was no other reasonable explanation that can come from the evidence presented. On the other hand, the preponderance of the evidence standard means that there is greater than 50% chance the claim is true. Needless to say, Dr. Fon and Ms. Seeger argued that the government's case was based on an alleged violation of the anti-kickback statute, which is a criminal statute, and as a result, the government had to prove that they violated the anti-kickback statute beyond a reasonable doubt. On the other hand, the DOJ argued that since the Civil False Claims Act was the operative statute, the preponderance of the evidence standard applied, which was the standard that was used to trial. Now, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeal focused on the fact that this was a Civil False Claims Act case. The False Claims Act requires that all elements of the False Claims Act violation must be proven by a preponderance of the evidence. The court then concluded that this included the allegation of a violation of the anti-kickback statute, and the Eighth Circuit ruled in DOJ's favor and held that the trial court correctly used the lower preponderance of the evidence standard. Well, that definitely feels like a score for the DOJ. And wasn't that fascinating? Have you changed your position on on uh, burdens of proof? I'll get, I'll get back to you on that one. Okay, Hannah. <sighs> casting pearls before swine. And the more complicated issue raised on appeal was what did Congress mean by their 2010 amendment to the anti-kickback statute when they changed the anti-kickback statute to state that false claims had to result from a violation of the anti-kickback statute. The trial judge had instructed the jury that they could find for the government if the DOJ was able to show that the claim failed to disclose the anti-kickback violation. The DOJ also tried to get the Eighth Circuit to focus on con the congressional legislative intent and the DOJ OIG pre-2010 tainted claims argument, essentially arguing that all they had to show was the violation of the anti-kickback statute may have been a contributing factor to a violation of the False Claims Act. Unfortunately for the government, that is not what the 2010 Amendment to the Anti-Kickback Statute says. Rather, the Eighth Circuit focused on what was required to be proved in order to show that the false claims resulted from a violation of the Anti-Kickback Statute. In past cases, in other contexts, the words result from was determined to mean a causal relationship. The Eighth Circuit then ruled that the jury should have been instructed that the government had to show that Dr. Fon would not have used the spinal implant sold by Ms. Seeger's company 
but for the remuneration that Ms. Seeger's company would earn from those referrals. Now, that's a much bigger win for Dr. Fawn and Ms. Seeger. True, but Dr. Fawn and Ms. Seeger should not pop the champagne quartz just yet. While the Eighth Circuit reversed the $5 million-plus judgment, in favor of the government, and I should add the key tamer relators who brought the claim, who would get a percentage of that recovery. It then held that the government should have the opportunity to prove its case, but this time using the correct but for jury instructions. So the appellate court remanded the case back to the trial court, giving the DOJ another shot at Dr. Fawn and Ms. Seeger in front of a new jury. Now, if I could provide some unsolicited advice, this time, in this case, there is a retrial. Dr. Fawn is well advised to re review the care that he provided to the 228 spinal surgeries involving Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries that comprised the government's case. And he should be able to tell the jury that while he loved his fiancée and was glad that she was able to make a nice living from her medical supply business, he loved his patients more. And he chose each of the spinal implants used in each of those 228 spinal surgeries because they were the best product for each patient's condition. Now, the government is not going to agree with that position. What they're going to have to show is that there were less expensive and perhaps more efficacious spinal implants available to Dr. Fawn and then use this information to convince a jury by a preponderance of the evidence that Dr. Fawn would not have selected the spinal implants that he used in those 228 surgeries, but for the commissions that Ms. Seeger would receive due to his choice of spinal implants sold by her company. So, this case had one ruling in favor of the government and another in favor of the defendants. However, the Eighth Circuit Court decision in favor of Dr. Fawn and Ms. Seeger on the amendment to the anti-kickback statute will really hamstring the government in this and in future False Claims Act prosecution cases. So this raises a number of questions as to how the DOJ will react. Will the government use the fact that the Third Circuit is ruled one way and the Eighth Circuit is ruled differently to appeal to the Supreme Court to resolve this split in the circuits? If the DOJ does not appeal, or if they do appeal to the Supreme Court, neither the Supreme Court refuses to hear the case because the Supreme Court has the latitude to only choose which cases it wants to hear, or they go in front of the Supreme Court and lose, that uh, will, the question is, will the change in jury instruction requiring the use of the but-for standard be enough for a jury to find Dr. Fawn and Ms. Seeger not guilty? We shall see. However, often in cases such as this, both parties recognize that discretion is a better part of valor and often agree to settle the case. And if that happens, then uh, a lot of times that's settled under seal and we may not know what happens. But, Hala, we're going to keep watching this case, aren't we? Yeah, we're going to keep an eye on this one and tr try to provide an update to find out what happens next. And hopefully we get an end to this story. We hope so, because... In Kickback Chronicles, we really do like happy endings, <laughs> uh, but especially one where um, there, there's a resolution one way or the other. So, 
If you want to learn more about the anti-kickback statute, the Stark Law, the January 21, 2021 amendments to the regulations to those laws, cost-sharing arrangements, the False Claims Act, and much more, we invite you to join myself, Dan Mulholland, and Mary Paterni in our Hospital Physician Contracts and Compliance Clinic that will be held in Las Vegas, Nevada from November 17th to the 19th, 2022. But if you can't catch us then, be sure to check the Horty Springer website for more information about new and upcoming opportunities to learn more on these topics. Thanks for listening and tune in next time to the Kickback Chronicles to keep learning from this misfortune of others.